So exciting news, Seeker is launching a brand new podcast called That's Totally Normal. It's all about the science of what is actually happening in the body when you're going through puberty. So yeah, that's everything gross, everything awkward, and even all the incredible things about one of the craziest times in human development. And the best part is that it's hosted by pediatrician Tessa Commerce, who you might know from TikTok as Dr. T. You can subscribe to That's Totally Normal wherever you get your podcasts. So, <laughs> how you doing, Greg? I'm just like shuffling paper, but it's just blank paper. <laughs> I was like, we have a manuscript on your end. It's not even your episode. How exciting. I'm old school with a pen and paper when I'm listening to your stories. <laughs> oh, that makes me really happy. It makes me feel very official. You know how we always joke, Greg, that you're the one eating in our recording sessions and you've always got the snacks on deck? I have it. Hang on. That reminds me, I genuinely do. <gasps> do you really? Yeah, okay, I genuinely wait, have okay. a little chocolate biscuit in my pocket and I'm glad you reminded me or it would have melted. <laughs> I've saved the biscuit from destruction. And this is important because I need to remind you not to eat anything before we dive into this story because it's going to get a little squicky at the beginning. Oh, okay. Gotcha. (laughs) So let me set the scene. The year is 1809. And you and I, we are in this dungeon-like basement of Edinburgh University Medical School in Scotland. Cool. And the room is freezing, right? Edinburgh, wintertime. You and I have both been there. Gorgeous place, but always cold. There is a putrid, rotting smell permeating the room all around us and the other medical students because what are we doing? Mm, Sounds delicious. Uh, What are we doing? Are we nicking dead bodies? Very close. We are dissecting cadavers. Dead bodies. That's why I thought we were nicking them. Because we're learning more about the inner workings of human anatomy. Edinburgh was a centre of medicine at the time. Um... It's also a hot spot for the trade in grave robbing as well. So many students were working there, but there weren't that many bodies for them to dissect because the legal routes of acquiring bodies only meant that there were a very limited supply. So if they wanted to get on well past their exams, they needed to go down alternative routes. It's bonkers, isn't it, that they couldn't get enough I don't know, donated bodies? I don't know how they would get them in a, in a legal sense, that they had to go, like, in the depths of night, shovel in hand, <laughs> digging into the soil. I've got a fresh one. Well, obviously not fresh, but you know what I mean. Over the shoulder or double lift. Bring it back to the university. Yikes. Although when you think about it, in teaching hospitals and learning hospitals, this was arguably the better option than just, like, practicing surgery on a live patient with no anesthesia. <laughs> It's better to learn how to do a surgery on a corpse than a live person, I would say. Fact. Yes. You don't want to be that person. So who we heard talking just now was Alexander Medcalf. He's a lecturer in the History of Science and Medicine at the University of York's Department of History. And who is next to us in this dark, dank basement, Greg, unraveling stinking corpses? But a handsome young Irishman, a very slight build. He's rather diminutive looking. He's also at Edinburgh University studying medicine with us. And this young man will, unbeknownst to us, go on to pretty radically revolutionize several areas of medicine during this Victorian age that we're going to come into later in our story. It's a story that travels pretty much the whole world and seriously shakes up a lot of the ways that we think about identity back then and the way people at the time thought about surgery, thought about public health, and how we talk about all of those things today. Are you ready? Sounds great. Uh, Can we get out of this smelly dungeon place, please? Yes, we can, Greg. I'm glad you asked. But first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I am Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger. And for this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of being able to tell you this rather wild life story, Greg. I want to find out who this is all about. So, we begin in Edinburgh, where our main character is diving elbows deep, as it were, into the art of understanding human anatomy. And there are accounts of him realizing during these rather horrifying scenes before him during dissection that he does, and this is him reflecting in his own personal memoirs, that he does indeed have the necessary inhumanity required to become a surgeon and a doctor. That's such a good way of putting it because I always think that when you see videos of people doing surgery and firstly it blows me away their abilities with their hands but also their abilities to keep their stomach so I guess those are the the skills that he shows absolutely you have to have some kind of separation between what you're working on before you doing kind of like gruesome things to and the person that all those things are attached to or inside of (laughs) 
And though he says this, he has the necessary inhumanity to become a surgeon, we'll see as the story unfolds that James Barry's humanity as a doctor is what makes him so memorable in the first place. Ah, oh, there he is, the name of this fine fellow, James Barry. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. So he's studying both medicine and literature in the early 1800s, and his early life is shrouded in mystery. Because at this point, say when you and I and he are in class in 1809, nobody can really say where he came from or how he ended up in Edinburgh. We don't even have a reliable date for when he was born. And this is for a very good reason that I will reveal later in our episode. He's originally Irish, as I've mentioned, and he's now over in Scotland living in Edinburgh with a woman that, according to all of his records, insists is his aunt. But in other letters, his friends refer to this woman as his mother. So there's some confusion there. And this woman's name is Mary Ann Bulkley. And her brother's name is also James Barry. This is supposedly who our James Barry is named after. So that would make them uncle and nephew. And uncle James Barry is a super famous painter who, according to history, has a rather hilarious past and is notoriously belligerent. He's a very colorful character. He's famous for his rejection of norms established by the Royal Academy of Art, leading to him being expelled (gasps) from the Royal Academy of Art, which is very hard to get them to do, apparently. (laughs) And these tidbits about Uncle James Barry are really important because he has an equally rebellious set of friends. These are all high-flying, well-to-do, landed gentry of various nationalities. Two figures in particular stand out. We've got Lord Buchan and General Francisco de Miranda. Great names. And both of these gentlemen are very rich and important men who, after Uncle James Barry's death, take an interest in nephew James Barry's career. And they supply young James Barry with funds from his uncle's estate and the, all of these letters of recommendation. They're opening doors for him, not only to their own experience, expensive and extensive libraries, but also into high society, and introducing him to their friends, generals in the army, other lords in high society. So this is the way that young Irishman James, from indetermined background, but certainly not landed gentry, comes to be the trusted friend of lords and ladies. God, that's really interesting. Thanks uh, riding on the coattails of the money from painter uncle who got thrown out of the Royal Academy of Art. From wild uncle James. So young James is finishing up his medical education and he's coming into the medical world at a really special time in this turn of the century between the 17 and 1800s. Here is Alexander Medcalf. From 1780, the field of medicine is undergoing rapid change. Various scientists across the globe are, are pushing at the barriers and trying to dispel the older notions of medicine, which have been in place for, well, for many hundreds of years, really, you're going from a time of thinking about causes of disease being an imbalance in the body to thinking about the rise of bacteriology from the middle of the 19th century onwards. And that allows people to make some progress against ancient scourges of humankind. So that imbalance that Alexander's talking about, is that still the humours, the four humours? Yes. Yeah, blood, phlegm. I think there are two vials, yellow and black. Yes, and at the time, we still got this idea of miasma, right, of bad or diseased air as this idea of how diseases get spread into something a little more like what we might see in modern medicine with more modern ideas of disease transmission. So it's a really exciting time for medicine, and we're going to dive into that in even more detail later in this episode. But here at the end of medical school, James has taken a special interest in learning more about obstetrics and gynecology. Do you know what that is, Greg? Uh, I know what gynecology is. Obstetrics is more once it comes out. Is it about the birth? (laughs) Once it comes out. Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. (laughs) It's mostly, especially at this time, focused around childbirth. And as you might be able to imagine at this time in the late 1700s, very early 1800s, childbirth is not the most advanced area of medicine. (laughs) The understanding that we have is not great and not a lot of attention is paid to it because it's not seen as particularly important, even though one could argue it is the most important thing that happens to any of us. Heck yeah. 
Is this a slightly different area to focus on as a young man in this time? Definitely. This is not the primary area of interest or focus for most young male surgeons of the time. It's sort of considered like an extra aside thing that you can do as a family doctor, but not much investigation is being done into how to do it better or how to make health outcomes better for mother and child during labor. So it is quite exceptional of James to have taken an interest in this. And even more specifically, he's interested in learning about hernias. Do you know what a hernia is, Greg? Is it a hernia when it kind of something pops out of the side of your yes, body? let me tell you about this. I Okay, I went down a whole rabbit hole during this episode about hernias because it's so cool. We all have this layer of tissue surrounding our internal organs. It's like keeping them in place, essentially. And a hernia is when you have an area of weakness in that enveloping layer of tissue around your organs and some kind of force or some kind of strain causes a part of your internal organs, usually your intestine, to just like go bloop and like poke out. I'm glad I didn't eat that biscuit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That is a bit. Oh, yeah. That is a bit rough, isn't it? We're getting into it. Again, surgeons, doctors, I salute you. So hernias are actually pretty common. They're not a life-threatening condition, but you do like typically need to have it addressed. Like you can't just go around with a hernia sticking out. You got to go to the doctor and they have to fix it. And today the surgery to fix a hernia is really quite simple. It's pretty easy. But in the early 1800s, people are like just starting to figure out how to do this. Like you got to open the person up, poke the organ back in, sew the tissue barrier back up, sew the person back up. Like, it's a whole deal. Put it all back in, stitch it up, you're off. (laughs) So Barry, as a medical student learning to be a surgeon, he's right on the front lines of people learning how to do procedures like hernia poking back inning. Corrections. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little better. And he wants to apply this knowledge and these new techniques in women. So, you know, when I said that there's a strain or a force that makes a hernia happen, like, what can we think of that is quite straining and quite forceful? Childbirth. That would be one. That would be one thing, especially after birthing multiple children. So hernias are really common in women after childbirth. But women's health, as we would say it today, quote unquote, is not exactly a great area of concern at the time, as I have said. So James's interest in treating women for hernias in particular is pretty unusual. And this sets the precedent for a trend that we're going to see throughout his career. And we'll touch back on it as we go through. Gotcha. Now, at this point, it is still relatively unclear how old James is. Because so much of his early life is shrouded in mystery, and based on varying records from throughout his life about his birth date, he could have been anywhere between 17 and 23 when he's ready to graduate from medical school. Gosh, that's quite a spread. Can you imagine being 17 and graduating as a doctor? A surgeon, no less? Surely not. Surely he wasn't that but we just don't know, do we? We don't know. We don't know, Greg. And I'll tell you why later. But regardless of his actual age, he still looks so young that the examiners don't believe any age that's written down on paper and are like, "Mm, no, you no, we're not going to have you sit for this examination. You're not allowed. We've got an extreme case of baby face here. (laughs) But this is where support from his esteemed benefactors, those lords on his uncle's level, comes in handy for the first of what will be many times because they intervene with the university on his behalf and he's eventually allowed to take his examination and receives his doctor of medicine diploma in 1812. So they're like, hey, he might look 12, but here's, you know, a bit of money under the table. Let him sit the exam. Money gets you places. Doesn't it just? So after his graduation, he comes down to London to become a surgeon's assistant at Guy's in St. Thomas's Hospital, where he learns all the tools of the trade that he's going to need, and where he starts to develop some personality traits that will stay with him throughout the rest of his career and our story that sort of set him apart from the rest of society. And at this particular time in history, science is starting to replace religion as this prime sphere of interest. So those who are interested in science, and specifically doctors, and specifically surgeons, are sort of regarded as these celebrities and heroes of the day. People come to watch in operating theater, and it's called theater because you can like buy tickets and watch it all go down. It's a fascinating period, this, this kind of turn of the 19th century. It really is. What I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall in some of these places. Quite a few flies. I'd imagine, on the walls. And so the circles that James is running in during this time are really characterized by like excess and debauchery. But James is pretty quiet. He's not a drinker. He becomes a complete teetotaler later in his life, as in someone who doesn't drink at all. 
He's not a big partier. He keeps to himself. He's a vegetarian, which is quite rare during this time. And even now, in this first year of his career, he is already talking about nutrition as being important to health, which is like even rarer. He would do very well on Instagram these days, wouldn't he? With all those traits. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. And he's notably not debauching himself in brothels. He keeps very much to himself. And then a year after James graduates from medical school, he becomes a surgeon in the British Army and he travels all over the world and shapes our understanding of modern public health in some really key ways. He innovates around several procedures, including the cesarean section. Wow. And he shapes the way the British Empire unfolds. And he did it all with a stunning secret, Greg, which we will dive into right after this short break. And we're back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and the year is 1813. James Barry has been recruited to become a surgeon with the British Army abroad. And here's the thing. We are going to get into James Barry's accomplishments all over the world as an army surgeon and how he contributed to and shaped medicine in these really important ways. But in order to fully appreciate these accomplishments, there is something that you need to know. Tell me. Because after James Barry's death, way later in our story... A maid arrives on the doorstep of his solicitor's office, his lawyer's office, demanding to see the person handling his affairs. She has something very urgent that she needs to tell them. This is like a film or a soap opera. <laughs> I'm like on the edge of my seat. This is what I was going for. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, next shot in our movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pan two. Exactly. Pan two. His doctor, the one who attended James during his final illness, they were friends for much of James's life. He was present at James's death and signed his death certificate. This doctor receives a letter. A letter from someone called the Registrar General. And this person is the person in a community who's in charge of the registration and certification of births, deaths, and marriages. They know everything. As you will see, yes. <laughs> I'll have you read the beginning of this letter, Greg, from the Registrar General to James Barry's doctor. Right, it reads, Sir, it has been stated to me that Inspector General Dr. James Barry, who died at 14 Margaret Street on 25th of July 1865, was after his death found to be female. As you furnish the certificate as to the cause of his death, I take the liberty of asking you whether what I have heard is true and whether you yourself ascertained that he was a woman and apparently had been a mother? Question mark. Wow. Okay. So you did say that he looked very youthful and this is the Registrar General asking this doctor who's really close to James, was James a woman? Yes. Was James a woman? Ah, this is a great question, Greg. <laughs> in response, this doctor who has known James for much of his life responds to this inquiry in what I think is a fantastic way. I will read this one. So in reference to this maid, right, who is revealing this secret, she's the one who told the solicitor. The solicitor told the registrar general in response to this scandalous revelation. The doctor says... I informed her that it was none of my business whether Dr. Barry was a male or a female, and I thought she might be neither. She, the maid, then said that she had examined the body, and it was a perfect female, and farther, that there were marks of him having had a child when very young. I then inquired how have you formed that conclusion. The woman, pointing to the lower part of her stomach, said, from marks here, I am a married woman and the mother of nine children, and I ought to know. The woman seems to think that she had become acquainted with a great secret and wished to be paid for keeping it. I informed her that all Dr. Barry's relatives were dead, and that it was no secret of mine, and that my own impression was that Dr. Barry was a hermaphrodite. Fascinating. Gosh. Amazing. So that may explain uh, why James didn't go to the brothels. Did he therefore potentially have a child? Like, do we do we know any? Are there any records? This is the part of the story that is still a little bit shrouded in mystery, but that historians have tried to untangle. So we'll dive into it. But it's also important to note here that this doctor who was his friend says at the end of that letter that I was reading earlier, whether Dr. Barry was a male, female, or hermaphrodite, I do not know. 
nor had I any purpose in making this discovery, as I could positively swear to the identity of the body as being that of a person whom I had been acquainted with for a period of years. If it's the doctor's job to identify that body as Dr. James Barry, the doctor does not need to be able to say whether Dr. James Barry was male, female, or something else. That's That wasn't required. Totally. And so that's his response to these claims. Was James Barry a woman from the Registrar General who is like demanding to know? And the only person to have inspected the body after his death is this maid who is insisting that yes, James is a woman. And the doctor who is saying, I could see Dr. Barry being hermaphroditic, he's using that word hermaphrodite, which is a more antiquated way of saying intersex. And because the historical record about this is quite muddy, and we don't want to impose anything on anyone from our modern lens, I read a great deal about how we should refer to and talk about people who were gender non-conforming in the past. There's always that question of like, some such people were women who presented as men for a while. Maybe they needed a job or maybe they wanted to be with their husband who was a soldier or whatever. And then like they go back to living as women. It's like, you know, there's certainly people who think of themselves as women who dress as men for a time or for a reason. That was Susan Stryker. She's a leading scholar and filmmaker in this area of historical research, and she currently holds the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership at Mills College, which, fun fact, is right across the street from where I used to live in Oakland, California. Huh. And Susan is suggesting that, yeah, there are women who dressed as men for a short period of time, but still, you know, thought of themselves as women. And also, why wouldn't they? I mean, crikey, the uh, the privilege and the advantage of being a man that period in time makes total sense. Right. Wanting to be a surgeon? Like, <laughs> no dice if you're a woman in that era. It's not happening. I also got the chance to talk to Amy Austin, who is a PhD student in this area, researching trans figures and trans identities throughout all of history. And she has something to say on this. Female to male was treated slightly differently. It was sort of seen as quite understandable. Why wouldn't women want to be men? They've got better rights, they're stronger, they're superior. Um, Women could dress as men to go off to war, usually referred to as women sort of going off to support their men um, in the best way they could, rather than thinking maybe this is sort of somehow identifying as a male. It was never considered as that. It was always seen as kind of a patriotic thing or possibly to get better economic opportunities. But it sounds to me that James, although we don't know whether James was born biologically a man or a woman, he identified as a man throughout his life. Exactly. And here's what Susan has to say about that. And then there are other people who... You know, even though they didn't have the word transgender available to them, if you look at their actions and they live really consistently as men, even though they were assigned female at birth. And so I think those of us who have a vested interest in parsing out the fine details of some gender variant, gender non-conforming historical figures life. You know, you look at somebody like Barry and you go like, yeah, he's more like a trans man than he is like a butch lesbian or a woman who pretends to be a man for a while. The point is, it's complicated. And even though we may still not know a lot about James's early life, we're going to dive into what we do know. And I wanted to stop here at this way station of a discussion so that we could talk about how we're going to talk about James. While some historians argue that using they pronouns to refer to gender non-conforming individuals in history because they didn't have the language or the freedom to express their identities at the time, James did live his entire life as a man. So I'm going to be interchangeably using he and they to refer to James, mostly he. And now that we know this about James, we can sort of rewind the tape a little bit back to the beginning of their life. From the historical documentation... It's thought that James was actually born Margaret Ann Bulkley, the daughter of Mary Ann Bulkley. And you might recognize that name, right? Yeah, because James lived with a Mary Ann Bulkley. Yes, exactly. So Margaret is on record the daughter of Mary Ann Bulkley and Mary's husband. And when Margaret is still quite young, another child mysteriously appears in the household. 
She's claimed to be the second daughter, Juliana, of Mary and her husband. And while she was presented as Margaret's sister, right, so Mary's child, some historians read into this occurrence that Juliana is actually Margaret's child maybe the result of some kind of abuse or sexual assault, because Margaret at this point is essentially still a child herself. So the theory is that Juliana is the child that causes these stretch marks that the maid sees on James's body after his death and is so desperate to reveal to the world. So Mary Ann Bulkley has a daughter, Margaret. Margaret has a daughter who then lives in the household as her sister. The thing is about this time is that this is where the record starts to fade away a little bit because there's just precious little material from this part of James's early life. And it is thought that this is purposeful, right? That this evidence has been destroyed as much as possible to keep James's origin and true identity a secret. But at some point, Margaret and her mother Mary leave Ireland and Mary and her nephew James appear in Edinburgh. And one of the reasons that we're actually uncertain as to James's age at different points in his life is because as he gets older, he keeps putting down birth years that would make him younger on different forms, probably so that he can have some reason that he looks so young when he presents in front of like military boards. And he's like, it's because I was, I'm actually only 18. Surprise. Yeah, this makes, this makes a lot more sense now with this revisiting of that story you told me at the start. And there are a couple of really interesting clues and breadcrumbs throughout history that historians have pieced together to really make a very convincing case for the fact that Margaret, when she disappears from Ireland, becomes James when James appears in Edinburgh. One of these pieces of evidence is a letter that was written by James to one of these benefactors, these rich, important patrons of Uncle James Barry, who become interested in young James Barry's career. There's a letter from young James Barry to one of them at the very beginning of his time in Edinburgh that he signs James Barry, but is sent to one of these patrons by Margaret Ann Bulkley. Also, the handwriting matches perfectly. No, I was also wondering if James's name was uh, deliberately chosen to be that of his uncle. Absolutely. To make that paper trail even more confusing. Well, I, I, not even more confusing. Uh, maybe to make it more confusing, throw people off the scent, but also to associate him with this important highfalutin member of society and get him in all of those doors. Can we also just give a nod to Marianne Bulkley doing that for her child? Being fully on board. And some of these historical breadcrumbs indicate that some of these lords, these rich and important generals and earls who are patrons of James Barry throughout his career, some of them may have also known. So we're back in the point in James's story where he joins the army as a surgeon, following a glowing letter of recommendation from one of these Lord friends, Lord Buchan, one of his primary upper-class supporters. And with all of this new context that we have now uncovered and digested, we can dive back into his remarkable career. Yes, you said the Caesarian and other such. Precisely. Take me through it. So I asked Alexander Metcalf, he's our History of Science and Medicine lecturer, to give us a little more of an idea what the chief medical concerns of the time are. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. And of course, during wartime, aspects involving military like colonial expansion, this is a key driver in terms of pushing medical knowledge forward because people want to gain an advantage over the other side heal their troops, protect them from disease. Yeah, you need your soldiers to stay alive in order to essentially kill the other lot. It's usually handy. This is a time of change in the British Empire. Britain has gone from having its first empire of North America. It's lost its American colonies, but it's gained new territories in the Pacific, in Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji. And there's a, another wave of interest in West Africa. So. Around the beginning of the 1800s, it's not the start of a British Empire, but it's a moment when it's being reformulated. So really at the time, and we've touched on this in especially a couple episodes of season one, that medicine and health in this era is really kind of a weapon of war and a way to shape the world. Big time. Remember the penicillin episode we did and Heck how that yeah. was really driven by who had access and how you could... What, was that the one where people were hiding it in their coats to kind of smuggle it? Absolutely. Oh, and that's a and great the one. quinine episode, right? Like actually shaped empires, including the British one. So here in this first part of James's experience in the British Army, his travels take him to South Africa, 
and he meets someone who will become very important in his life, Lord Charles Somerset. Lord Charles is the governor of South Africa at this time, which is a British colony at the moment, and he is grieving the sudden death of his wife, which leaves him both without a wife and without a trusted physician, because his current physician failed to save his wife. Ah, oh, true. And James arrives, highly qualified doctor, and it seems insinuates himself into the Somerset household in such a way that James and Charles form a very close relationship. Like, very, very close. I'm catching your vibes. There's a lot of gossip around the town about the nature of this relationship. We can't suppose anything, nothing is ever explicitly said, but people suspect. And it would seem that Charles is totally enamored by James in some way. James wins him over. And Charles, as governor of South Africa, opens all kinds of doors for James and promotes him quite fast from someone who is just a simple army surgeon to medical inspector of the whole colony. Wow, that's a quick rise. James is really good at this, you know, like befriending people who then open doors uh, and allow him to really rise up the ladder quickly. It's fascinating because there are kind of these two sides of a coin in his life. And I think this is one of them. And the other one is gonna show itself later in his career. And you're just gonna, you're gonna laugh so hard. But at this point, when he's still young, he's really won over Lord Charles. He's also starting to maybe express himself personally a little bit more. He is going to the dances. He's being more part of social society. He becomes quite the flirt by all accounts, winning over the hearts of all the prettiest young ladies, getting into duels over who gets to marry a young lady, which he never does, by the way. Those were the times, weren't they? (laughs) Fisticuffs at dawn, sir. I throw my glove in front of you and we solve this with a... (laughs) Pistol fight at dawn. (laughs) Exactly. So leaving dances and gloves and fisticuffs aside, when he gets promoted to medical inspector, this is where the themes of all of his work that come to define his life really start to take shape. Colonial medicine was very much about protecting the European settlers, the army, the tradespeople, the people administrating the colony. They didn't care tremendously about the health of the indigenous people. And so that's Alexander. He's painting the scene for medicine in James's time that is very much so only focused on like white colonists. So the idea of trying to save European settlers from infectious disease takes on a new dimension with this expansion in the imperial project. It's absolutely essential to settling these areas productively, trying to save the settler population from disease. It's just that classic thing, isn't it, of like, we'll just protect our own. You know, hey, we might have colonised, taken over, had a distinct influence and possibly brought our own diseases over to uh, to the indigenous people. But we're not going to care for them. We're only going to care for our own. So James, as medical inspector, has a pretty markedly different approach from other people doing this kind of job of his time. He's really outspoken about the conditions that are afflicting the poor. He's outspoken about his opposition to slavery, and he's really adamant that health is indeed health of a whole community, not just the richest, whitest folks at the top, but that to keep everybody healthy, everybody has to be healthy. And that you can even start to think about preventing disease in advance instead of merely reacting to it. In most of the colonies, the disease situation is like really out of control. We've got dysentery, typhus, pneumonia, smallpox, measles, whooping cough, like a seemingly infinite array of sexually transmitted diseases. This is great that James is actually thinking collectively rather than selfishly. We're talking about a time when the science is advancing quite rapidly, but the availability of new drugs and medicines just isn't there until much later in the 19th century. So the stuff you've got to deal with disease and illness, it's mainly around improving things like sanitation, improving diets and things like that. Your wonder drugs don't come until much later. So it's still quite a dangerous time to be ill. Yeah, whenever I say that, you know, it's a sort of period of time that I would love to have experienced, I'd love to experience it with today's like (laughs) medical kit in my backpack. (laughs) Yeah, I would like to go fully immunized, please. Thank you. (laughs) And James is a huge 
huge proponent of this, right? We're set against this backdrop where we're still dealing with the four humors, the idea of miasma, the idea that like bloodletting and making you vomit violently is like the best way to make you better from a disease. And James is all on board the train that sanitation, diet, humanitarian medical treatment that is available to everyone, no matter gender, race, or social class, all of these ideas on his behalf are really revolutionary. Which is bonkers now you say it, right? But the fact is, at the time, they were revolutionary. Totally. He's really pushing a lot of boundaries here. And he spends over 10 years improving the sanitation and the water systems, improving conditions for enslaved people, although many of them still remain enslaved. And he improves conditions for the prisoners and mentally ill in the places that he serves. He transforms the private hospital in South Africa into a public hospital that is open to anyone who needs it. He builds a sanctuary for the leper population. Again, back to season one, one of our last episodes. James is awesome. I freaking know, my dude. And he reforms quarantine laws. He's starting to coalesce this understanding from the best and brightest and all of the current research to say like, oh, hey, maybe sick people should like stay in a place separate from everyone else while they are sick. That would be good. Remember the Peach Melbourne episode? Precisely. Mary Malone. But here is where we get the other side of the coin, Greg, right? We start to see him become more social. We see that he can make friends in high places to get himself where he wants to go. But also being this outspoken in such a way that goes against the grain earns him his critics. Those who are in power over both him and over Lord Charles, who is the governor of the colony, They're not too happy with James rocking the boat. There start to be reports and whisperings calling James too loud, too outspoken, too stubborn. He doesn't have respect for authority. And this all may have played a part in what happens next. Oh gosh, okay, what happens next? He and Charles, the lord of the colony, to whom he is now personal physician, who have a very close relationship about which there is a lot of gossip, they are charged with sodomy. Ah. Like a gay relationship, which yes. at the time and up until like freaking 1965 in England is illegal. Wow, that must have not only been a huge scandal, but that must have been people frowning at them and probably a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah, you could say that. Uh, Charles is relieved of his position as governor of the colony. He's found unfit to fill the position. And that leaves James vulnerable, right? His his lord and protector is now gone. And something else happens in South Africa after this that is really important to note. And that is a very risky and bold surgery. So if you recall, James was interested in childbirth and the effects thereof on women back in medical school, right? And all that hernia stuff of just like, boop, poke it in. (laughs) Pop it back in. And while in South Africa, he's made a name for himself as a doctor who is, uh, and I quote from a letter at the time, unequaled in his skill at attending births. So one dark and stormy night in Cape Town, James is called to a labor of a woman who is uh, not having a good go of it, one might say. Labor is not going well. The baby is stuck. It becomes very clear that like either the mother or the child or both may die in this labor. And the year is 1826. And what does James do, Greg? Hang on, you mentioned Caesarean earlier. Um, so does he open up the sunroof and, and take it out that way? <laughs> the sunroof! Ah. Yeah, he performs a C-section. <laughs> before the rise of adequate sanitary measures, before the rise of anaesthetics, surgeons will generally only attempt surgeries where it's going to result in significant improvement for the patient and also they're likely going to go in for unambitious surgeries. Uh, They don't really go in for heroic surgeries because there's just such a chance of blood loss and the patient uh, going into shock. So it was risky, but it was his idea as a way to save uh, save this woman's life. Had a C-section been done before, or was this him just kind of thinking, this is a thing I'm going to try? Six C-sections, Greg. Six C-sections had been previously recorded in history. Gosh. Only six. And many of them resulted in the death of either the mother or the child or both. So like successful C-sections is even smaller. (laughs) Okay, so number seven is happening on this dark and stormy night in in Cape Town. Dark and stormy night. No anesthetic. What? No antibiotics to speak of. Yeah, one of the records at the time was like, the most anesthetic she probably would have had is a strong dose of South Africa's best brandy. And I was like, that's not enough. (laughs) Poured all over you, more likely. Will help. Horrifying. 
But luckily, James is the one attending because many of his convictions stand him in good stead. This is pre-real development of germ theory, but he has this understanding that cleanliness, like a clean area, is necessary for improving outcomes after surgery. And thank goodness he takes her down to a sterilized, we would call now sterilized, but they didn't really understand what that meant back then, alcohol poured all over the kitchen table, and he does a C-section. Everybody survives. Wow. Awesome. The child is named after him. The child becomes his godson. Another James Barry. Another James Barry. And actually, that child has descendants. And one of the descendants bearing James Barry's name becomes prime minister of South Africa later. Very cool. And while this surgery is what really puts James Barry on the map, it makes him famous. We remember him for it to this day. He also did some other really cool stuff in South Africa that kind of gets swept under the rug that is related to something we just talked about that you hinted at a little bit earlier. He wrote about the use of different plants for the treatment of some diseases. And this made my microbiologist heart swoon because syphilis and gonorrhea, right, what we call venereal diseases, sexually transmitted infections, are two of the hugest issues in all colonies at the time. And there is a plant that grows in South Africa called Arctopus echinatus. And it had been traditionally administered for all kinds of bacterial ailments. And we now know, using modern chemistry, that it actually does have legitimate antimicrobial properties. Sweet. So cool. And Barry wrote about this at the time. He provides instructions for the administration of this plant in the form of certain medicines. And he writes about it, giving credit to the fact that people native to this area had been doing this for many years. He doesn't take credit for discovering it or inventing it, which I think is pretty cool. That's a nice rarity, as we know from telling these stories and honestly at this point you might be thinking that like this is enough already for one person's extraordinary life and career right heck yeah but actually we're only just getting started for goodness sake james is impressive (laughs) and where james ends up next on his globe trotting journey i will tell you right after this short break And we're back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and the year is 1828. James has left South Africa and is on his way to Mauritius. Oh, that's a beautiful tropical island that I don't actually know where it is. It's kind of by Madagascar, right on the eastern coast of Africa, and it is gorgeous. But at the time, these colonial islands are not a great place to be health-wise. Another place you would want to go back in time to only if you had all your shots. But he actually isn't even in Mauritius that long. He has to go home to England because Charles, Lord Charles, very close dear companion of James, is taken ill. And he returns home to doctor him at the end of his life. And Charles sadly dies and takes any hints or clues in letters or personal recordings that he may have made, that he may have known James's secret, He takes all of those with him to the grave. Oh, bummer. I know. I just want more details about this extraordinary life, but we just don't frickin' get him, my dude. Although, by all accounts, James is pretty devastated by Charles' death and ships back out with the British Army. They're just kind of sending him anywhere they need him, and he ends up in Jamaica. That's, I know where that one is. That's in the Caribbean. Exactly. And again, you would think like beautiful tropical island, vacation destination for most of us today. But Jamaica, at this time in history, is not a great place to be. This also, notably, is where he meets the doctor who we heard from earlier in the episode, the doctor who writes the letter after his death. This is where he and that doctor become friends. They work together in Jamaica. This point in James's story is the meeting of two extremes. Because James is this fiery proponent of dignity for all, public health, sanitation, healthy lifestyle. And Jamaica is this place that is rife with political corruption and making his job nearly impossible. There's no formal medical training for anyone on the island. There's no public hospitals. There's no advancement of research into new treatments that could make a difference. Slavery is still legal. And the medical standard treatments here are still things like bloodletting and purgatives for literally like any issue that anyone might present with. Okay, yeah, that's that's a place it's going to be a real challenge for him to make his mark on. And he is pretty much right off the bat sort of rejected by the medical 
people in power on the island at the time. He's sort of exiled to this remote suburb of the poorest of the poor in Jamaica outside of Kingston. But with his unusual methods, improving sanitation, insisting on fresh, balanced diets, clean water of all things, he manages to help decrease mortality on the island significantly, even within the poorest areas of Jamaica. Yet again, he's doing that preventative rather than, you know, active treatment. He's like, okay, if we change these key things, cleanliness, access to water, the food that you consume, that is going to make people healthier, more resistant to disease. It's kind of in a way, it's modern, but it harks back to what the Greeks were doing with prevention is better than cure. Right, because we don't have a lot of good drugs to treat things better just stop you getting sick in the first place. And while we, from our modern perspective, think like, yeah, that's like the best idea that you could possibly have in this scenario, it is thanks to people like James that we now have that modern understanding. He's one of the people who pushed that forward. And as we discussed, he's an abolitionist. He is staunchly anti-slavery. Jamaica is still a sugar plantation island, and James is there for the huge slave rebellion of 1831. He is required by his position to treat injured British soldiers who are quelling this rebellion while the rebels, the slaves, are being hunted down and tortured and executed. And this only serves to strengthen his abolitionist beliefs throughout the rest of his life. So he's on the side of, he is treating the people who are trying to kill the people fighting for the rights of the slaves, which is actually what he believes. Yeah. Oh. This and again, just another army move are part of why in 1836, he ends up on the island of St. Helena. That's the island where Napoleon was sent to be exiled after his defeat. Just fun fact. And again, we see him really coming into his stubbornness, shall we say. Every successive island that he ends up on, he ends up being even more vociferous about all of his beliefs. In this particular place, he refuses to put the blame for venereal disease onto the prostitutes, the women who are trying to make a living selling sex work. And instead, he's pointing to this lack of control that the male soldiers have due to lack of discipline and excess consumption of alcohol and points to decreasing alcohol alcohol consumption as a way to improve public health. <laughs> wow. I love that he is um, standing by his principles and almost that they're crystallizing even more with each island hop because some people could have had it beaten out of them. Absolutely. And we see this get him into more and more trouble, especially on St. Helena. He hires women of color to work in his hospitals in leadership positions. In the 1830s, he establishes the first organized vaccination program on the island, I wow. think for small Pox. He once again defends that public hospitals should be open and free to all. And this is what really gets him into trouble because all of these things cost money. Yeah. And you know what else is tied up in the money, Greg, is the politics. Oh, man. I'm surprised, actually, that he hasn't had serious repercussions doing this in Mauritius, in Jamaica. And, but it sounds like it's coming to a head in St. Helena. Oh, yeah, buddy. They arrest him twice. Not even for anything, like, real, just for being a pain in the butt, basically. <laughs> for, like, haranguing <laughs> officials about, like, where is my money? Why haven't you given me my money? Please fund my hospitals. Wow. And the second time, he is both deported from the island and demoted. Essentially, his higher-ups are saying, you are so inconvenient and so insubordinate, I cannot be bothered to have you here any longer. <laughs> what I also love is how you told me that when he was younger, he was uh, quiet and diminutive and kind of kept himself to himself. But here he is kind of like making a stand so much that he's being arrested because he is like, no, this needs to happen. He learns that his methods and his beliefs that he stands by work. He's seen it in action and he's like, no, I'm not going to be silenced by your bureaucratic red tape and your hierarchy of political power. Like people are dying. We need the money. <laughs> He's then, after St. Helena, essentially exiled to the West Indies. So on these islands, alcoholism is really, really rife. And he is once again tasked with trying to institute some semblance of common sense in terms of public health, disease transmission prevention, in the face of diseases once again like dysentery, yellow fever, malaria, sleeping sickness, lung disorders, and again, excessively high rates of sexually transmitted diseases. All they do is they drink and have sex. Yeah, he can't catch a break. And unfortunately, this is where a lot of it catches up with him. 
he is a little bit older now in his life, and he himself gets really ill with yellow fever. And for all of the gruesome details on what yellow fever is, you can go back and listen to our episode called The Deadly Buzz in season one. Is that the one that involves someone injecting it in their eye? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, go listen to that one. It's um, it's a great one, to be honest. <laughs> So an interesting note here, and one that historians pick up on quite a bit, is that when he knows he's sick, and when you have yellow fever, you know you're sick, he thinks he might die, and he makes it very, very, very clear to everyone and all of the doctors attending that his body is not to be examined in the event of his death. Ah, which which adds weight to uh, the story we were telling earlier. So at this point, he doesn't die. He survives, but he survives in a really weakened state. Yellow fever takes a huge toll on his body, but he still perseveres. He spends even more years in the West Indies trying to reform any semblance of public health they may have. And then he goes on with the army to Malta, Corfu, Crimea, where he continues to battle infectious diseases with all of these newfangled ideas of keeping things clean and not overworking, not overdrinking, having clean water, and continues to make people really mad by seemingly having no respect for people having positions above him or having to demure to authority. <laughs> I, I love the sound of what he's doing. You know, he's standing up to power. He's trying to overthrow the old techniques for something that he's seen the evidence that will help people. But he is part of that power, right? He, he lives his life alongside it. He has significant white male privilege. Yes, for all intents and purposes, he, he is a man. He lives his life as a man. And this one standout instance illustrates this really perfectly, Greg. It's in Crimea that James meets Florence Nightingale. Uh huh. Okay. And who is Florence Nightingale to you, Greg? Uh, the pioneer of modern nursing, I guess. The lady with the lamp. Ab- absolutely. That is how we remember her. And historians describe this instance as the meeting, and I quote, of two of the 19th century's most tireless medical reformers. So how do we think it went? Well, I'd love to think there was a meeting of minds, that they both, you know, spoke the same language. uh, And we've heard that James has been willing to uh, celebrate the success of, of others that weren't him. So I'm hoping it's going to be positive, but I'm really worried by your face that it wasn't. One would hope, but... Florence writes a letter to her sister recounting that Barry gave her the worst scolding she had ever experienced and that he behaved like a brute. Here's the image that I was referring to earlier, Greg, that I want us to picture. James is on his horse, on literally on his high horse, (laughs) and he's scowling down at Florence Nightingale in front of this whole battalion of troops and her colleagues, haranguing her finger in face about how she doesn't know anything and she's doing everything wrong. Even though we consider her his peer and a pioneer in this understanding of public health that Barry also stood for. Not cool in private even more not cool in public. And even after his death, Florence gets news of this rumor, right? This wild supposition that James may have in fact been a woman. Florence hears this and she says, he was still the most hardened creature I have ever met. Well, it doesn't matter the gender of James at that point. If they're being a brute, they're being a brute. That's right, my guy. So after this particularly brusque moment in his life. He finds himself back in England. He's not doing too hot. He got sick on the voyage over. He's seriously weakened by his bout of yellow fever. He has little to no money. He hasn't been great with his finances over the years. And the army forces him into retirement, which devastates him, right? This is his purpose. By all accounts, this is what he lives for. And now he's not allowed to do it. And at the end of his life, he spends a couple of years in London, sort of twiddling his thumbs. And then in 1865, there's a heat wave, a subsequent outbreak of mysterious diarrheal illness, and he dies. Oh, that's that's a pity. It's also a little bit ironic, isn't it, that he spent his life trying to improve sanitation for people and subsequently dies from something that is probably down to poor sanitation. Extremely ironic, one might say. And so we come again to these circumstances surrounding his death, right? Even though this doctor and longtime friend who he has met in Jamaica is the one who says, look, he has no living relatives, you have no leverage for blackmail to this maid. 
The maid may have gone ahead and told everyone anyway, because it's published by a gossip magazine, and it becomes the matter of much public scrutiny and debate. At the time, and even sometimes the way it's told today, James's story becomes this lurid, sensationalist tale, and it's with looking into this that I really want to tie up James's story. At one level, of course, you know, Barry was a very accomplished person as a medical doctor, as a surgeon, but I think, honestly, if Barry had not been discovered to have been assigned female at birth, that, you know, he would have been just another accomplished military doctor serving the British Empire, you know, that his many accomplishments would not have like risen to the level of historical superstar. And yet, you know, when we in encounter that, it's like, it's really easy to sensationalize it. We treat it as if it was some like, crazy thing that nobody's ever heard of before. Again, that's our gender studies expert, Susan Stryker. Susan raises an interesting question, though. Was one of the reasons why you chose to tell Dr. James Barry's story because of this whole aspect of, of this mystery? Um, you know, the stories we choose to tell on this podcast matter, and I think it's great that we've been discussing all this sort of stuff, but what was the motivation for choosing it? I mean, it was definitely this sensationalist hook, right? And then as I dove in, and especially in my conversation with Susan, I was like, all right, well, we got to talk about this exceptionalism or this tokenism. And is that a good motivation for choosing this story or not? And uh, it's really thorny. And I have some thoughts that I'll come back to. But I also wanted to be really careful not to put James on too much of a pedestal because he was still very much a tool of colonial forces abroad. There's a colonial practice of medicine of like treating population as resource. So like it's for empire that you want the population there to be productive and healthy and basically like population as resource to be managed for interests of empire. It's like that's what he harnessed his medical practice too. So yes, he made some individual lives better. It's like he did introduce sanitary and hygienic measures or nutritional reforms that made individual lives better, but it was part of the colonial practice of managing the population for the benefit of empire. People like Barry were gender non-conforming people who were fully part of settler colonialism and imperialism. You know, just like they were agents of empire as much as, you know, anybody else doing the same job that they were doing. So I just want us to keep that in mind. But here's the conclusion that I sort of came to at the end of all of my thinking about James's story. I think it's still really important to tell stories like his because there were gender non-conforming people all throughout history and we need to show that a lot of people think that transgender is something new you know that it's something that got made up by overprivileged you know liberal arts college kids in the last few years. But uh, if you look historically, there's just a lot of variability in how it is that human cultures have decided who's a man and who's a woman. Like some cultures have had more than two gender statuses. Um, you know, there's just a wide diversity of ways that human cultures have organized what we call gender. That's a really good point. I mean, this spectrum didn't just pop into existence, right? It's been there probably as long as humanity has been there. Exactly. I, I'm a huge fan of a poet named Jay Hulm, um, who happens to be trans. And he said something once just casually that has really stuck with me, that when he goes to graveyards, he thinks about how many of those people from history may have been trans, gender nonconforming, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and nobody knew and we have no record of it. Maybe they didn't do anything particularly special or they weren't outed after death like James Barry was, but they're there. They're with us in our graveyards, in our history. And that's such a rich history that was often covered up and lost because of the social norms or even laws of the time. That's really nicely put. So while putting together this episode, I didn't want to sensationalize James and his story to sort of have it be this shock and awe and almost like ridicule in a way. Like, let's look at this strange person from history and how strange they were, like some kind of aberration. I also didn't want to perpetuate the narrative that a lot of historical sources have that James was a women's rights hero and an icon for being like the first woman to do all of these things or a pioneering figure in medicine for women because he just kind of wasn't. 
a woman. Yeah. And talking about figures from history like James lets us know that they existed. They made a change. And as a queer identifying person myself, it makes me feel really excited to go on into the future to build a world where we can say, listen, we're here, we're queer, and we always have been. And we need to talk about things like gender, sexuality, identity in all fields, including science, because everybody who does science and everybody who science affects, we're all just people. And we all deserve to be treated as such. And this time around, not have the way our lived experiences affect our work and our ways of thinking, not have that pushed into the shadows. You always put this so beautifully, and it's a pleasure to sit here and listen. Thank you so much for listening, Greg, and for being equally as excited as me to bring these stories to more people on this awesome show. So it's time to say our thank yous and goodbyes for this episode. No, it's time for me to eat this mint club biscuit that's been sat here on the table. But yeah, you carry on with the credits. Greg will just be crunching away in the background. Today's experts were Susan Stryker, Alexander Metcalf, and Amy Austin. So thank you all so much for your time and your knowledge. Their information and all of the sources that I used to put this episode together can be found in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get yours. Uh, Generally, it does make a big difference. So if you could do that, that'd be ace. Thank you. Spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think might enjoy this episode. We've got a few more episodes on the way in season two. So subscribe to catch them. And if you have a story from science history that you would like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you'd like to know the story behind you can email us we are brilliant at seeker.com if you want to get in touch with me and greg we are available on social media greg is at greg foot on both twitter and instagram marin is at marin hunsberger on twitter but at marin b b-e-a on insta surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and this episode was written by me marin hunsberger my awesome co-host is as always greg foot and our producer for this episode was sylvia lazaris this episode was edited by lucas bollinger we had support from the team at seeker including caroline roth jessica young megan bates and megan foo and from the group nine podcast team including supervising producer emily feld the show's executive producers are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadikador. You can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com, and we'll talk to you in the next one. See ya.